If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispie, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. The 17th century was one of the most turbulent periods in London's history. One that was blighted by civil war, pestilence, fire and revolution. Yet, as Margaret Lincoln chronicles in her new book, London and the 17th Century, it was also a period in which London became the mercantile and political powerhouse that would sit at the centre of a huge empire. Here, in conversation with our production editor, Spencer Mizzen, Margaret reveals how a modern metropolis was forged in the century of Pepys, Newton and Cromwell. So, Margaret, your new book, London in the 17th Century, tells a story of um, one of the most tumultuous periods in the city's history. One that takes in plague, uh, fire, a terrible civil war and near the end of the century, revolution. Um, But uh, before we go into that in more detail. I wonder if you could set the scene a little. Um, what, what sort of city was London at the dawn of the 17th century? In, in terms of size and influence, where would you say it ranked among Europe's great cities? Well, it was a crowded, filthy place, um, full of dirt and pollution. Um, by 1600, the population had risen to about 200,000, which doesn't sound much to us today. But overcrowding produced foul odours, you know, the markets, masses of debris, uh, three days a week, the the pigs roamed the streets and scavenged, and wherever the livestock was slaughtered, it was was terribly unpleasant. And then east of the city, there were coal-fired furnaces in the glass houses, the soap boilers, and the breweries, which which produced thick, acrid smoke. Um, So it was a very unhealthy place. Already it was expanding, so some of the city's wards on the the northern um, 
side of the city were actually outside the wall. And of course, um, Southwark was also outside the wall. There was only one bridge uh, across the river. So uh, hundreds of watermen every day would ferry goods and people across the river. And it was a city where most people walked, in fact. I mean, you could walk across the city in less than an hour. It was only about two miles wide and one mile deep. Uh, But the roads were so crowded, it was often more convenient for people to go by water. And and the skyline was dominated by church towers. Um, Its streets rang with with the noise of manufacture. It was a frenetically busy place. And its its glamour defied all problems of of disease and crime and pollution. So, So the poet John Donne famously said, you know, come to play ye London. It's a place full of danger, vanity and vice, which I think really encapsulates its horror, but at the same time its allure. And as, as for its rank amongst European cities, well, Venice was the byword for wealth and magnificence. And Amsterdam was growing more powerful by the year because of its trade with the Indies. And if you, if you wanted fashion, Paris had style. So London was by no means in the first rank. One thing that I, I really got a feel for when reading your book was the lives of Londoners themselves. Uh, you know, their pageants, their riots, their radicalism, their day-to-day anxieties. Is it fair to say that this was an era in which the normal people were able to make their voices heard and shape political events to a, a greater extent than they'd ever done before? Well, broadly, you're right. Broadly, yes, but with many caveats. So London had a strong civic identity. Um, it jealously guarded its right to run its own affairs. You know, it said it had this charter since before the time of the Norman invasion in 1066. And there was a fair amount of democracy in London. So each of the 25 wards would send an official to the court of aldermen and several several men to the court of common council, which, which had 200 members. The city itself sent four MPs to Parliament, but of course Parliament rarely sat under the Stuart Kings. Um, so the traditional way to get your grievances heard was by petition. Um, and there were large petitions signed, signed by thousands of people, including women. I mean, women sent in petitions, certainly in the Civil War period. Women wearing white ribbons descended on Whitehall and presented their petition. They were calling for peace at that time, but they, they petitioned about other things too. And people could get their views into print from time to time. You know, there were licensing laws, but during the Civil War, these lapsed. Um, and there were thousands of broad uh, broadsides and pamphlets published, you know, for arguing for each side of the conflict. Um, you know, the publisher, Charles Thomason, collected 22,000 of these that we can still consult. Um, so there was a lot of fake news going around. And then the leveller movement in the 1640s called for more franchise, but that was quashed by Cromwell. So people in London could always protest too. You know, they could riot. But something we don't often realise is that is that London had thousands of apprentices, young men, um, sort of up to no good most of the time, because London took 5 to 10% of all the apprentices in England. It was prestigious to get an apprenticeship in London. And, and you know, rich merchants would organise these apprentices to, to, to ha- form processions and demonstrations and riots. And certainly when they, uh, uh, you know, attacked the, the Roman Catholic chapels in James II's reign, these riots were actually um, a means of getting rid of him. So Londoners did have some effect 
on on public opinion and public affairs. But then when many people tried to get their voices heard, they were hung, drawn and quartered. So you had to be a bit careful. They could be brutally punished. Why why do you think London was such a hotbed of of, uh, radicalism and and emergent political and religious ideas in in the 17th century? I think its size and its importance meant that any any public opposition to the political system tended to focus in London. And in so much as Puritan values were often opposed to a corrupt court or um, to wealthy merchants who had the monopoly on trade, uh, they too were popular in London. The other thing to remember is that the city was expanding, but the city authorities didn't have much um, authority in the suburbs. They had a kind of diff- they were regulated differently. So all the Puritan radical dissent sort of clustered in the suburbs. Um, you know, in Southwark, the tanners and the glovers and the brewery workers were, were legendary for their sedition and their lawlessness. So after about 1640, uh, in the suburbs, the radical feeling grew. And because Archbishop Lord was um, instigating church reforms because he wanted to bring back ritual into the church, this kind of radicalised, quite middling people, they became more and more Puritan. And this manifested itself in a lot of subversive preaching in pulpits, a lot of radical material coming out of illicit printing presses, and in demonstrations. I mean, Lord nearly had his house wrecked by a a demonstration of -of out-of-work seamen and apprentices. I was quite taken by Ned Ward's colourful description of the city's coffee shops being the home of um, stinking tobacco and stinking breaths, often doubling up his brothels and being the home of drinking, swearing and profaneness. I mean, why did coffee shops become such a focal point of both the light and the dark side of the capital's culture in the 17th century? Well, it's a very good question, because, of course, before there were coffee shops, people did all their business in taverns. And um, before the advent of hot, non-alcoholic drinks like coffee and tea, most Londoners were daily inebriated because they were drinking beer all the time. And I suppose they, they once they got hold of coffee, they learned that actually it, it was better to be sober for business. Coffee shops provided a great address for merchants who might be operating out of rented rooms. So it was like, like hot desking these days. They had a business address and they could collect their post there. And the popular conception of coffee houses today is that they were places of polite conversation and intellectual debate and sober business. But actually, the streets of Stuart London were frenetic and filthy, and coffee shops are just an extension of this experience. And it's it's wrong even to think of them as uniformly sober places because people went there after drinking in the tavern to sober up. It was like the 17th century equivalent of getting a kebab, you know. And... Some coffee shops actually sold spirits and and something called cock ale, which is a disgusting um, concoction of beer and parboiled chicken with spices. Um, The other thing that I think you were alluding to is that coffee shops were wholly implicated in, in a criminal underworld of theft, receivership and prostitution. So uh, gangs might steal things that didn't apparently appear to have any value, like pocketbooks or bonds uh, that they couldn't cash in. 
But then when people advertised for these things to be returned, no questions asked, they could often recover them in coffee shops, um, you know, for a, a small reward. So thieves would sell, uh, steal things in order to get the reward rather than the, the thing that they'd stolen. And, and as you said, coffee shops were often, you know, part brothel. So there was, there's no simple uh, definition of a coffee shop because some were, were perfectly sober places where business was done and others were very dubious places, um, which was essentially a bawdy house. Now, the Civil War was um, obviously one of the, the most traumatic and seismic events of, of the 17th century. What role did London play play in the war? I mean, was it, would it be fair to say it was broadly parliamentarian, royalist, or was, or was it split down the middle? Well, London played a crucial role because London was stupendously wealthy and whoever controlled London had the wealth of, of, of trade that was sort of focused there. And they also had uh, the militia because London had lots of trained bands. It didn't have a police force, but it had trained bands that helped to protect it in times of crisis. So Charles never should have left London to the parliamentarians. But London wasn't uh, exclusively parliamentarian. It was pretty split at the beginning of the conflict. And that's because the city aldermen uh, generally did side with the king. Uh, they were they were rich themselves. Uh, the king relied on them for loans uh, rather than going to parliament. And in return for these loans, the city aldermen got a special deal. You know, they got monopolies on companies and things. So once Charles had left, uh, parliament... Um, worked hard to get control of the city. Um, it got rid of the royalist mayor, it impeached him and put him in the tower. And then it persuaded uh, other important men to sign up to parliament. And of course, it could do this because it controlled the militia. It, it could actually impose its will. The other thing that happened in London, of course, is that to, to defend the city, uh, they built a huge earthworks all the way around it you know, much, much um, further out than the city walls itself. And sometimes, I mean, there are remnants of this today. There's the rem remnants of a fort in Hyde Park. And whenever you see the word mount in a street name, it, it can signify that there was a fort there. So the Mount Pleasant Post Office building was on the site of a fort in, in this great ring of earthenworks that people built around the city. And women and children and shopkeepers all worked on these fortifications. So it had the effect of bringing Londoners together in a common cause. But that said, there were always royalists in, in, in the town. Um, and the parliament forces kept a close watch on them. Was there actually much fighting within the city itself? None at all, none at all. Um, and that's because... Um, when Charles marched on London, the militia and other people, um, a force of some 24,000, marched to Turnham Green. And there the two forces took stock of each other and Charles weighed up whether he could actually take, um, you know, whether he could fight 24,000 men. And um, he decided he couldn't. He marched away again. He thought better of it. Yeah, yeah it's, it's amazing. So he lost his, his big chance to take back the capital. One of the most um, dramatic chapters in your book is called Plague, Fire and War. And it refers to the Great Plague of 1665, uh, the fire that swept through the city in the following year, and war with the Dutch. 
How much did these events shape Londoners and the city itself? Well, they had a mental and a physical effect on London, obviously. To take them in order, I mean, the plague, um, almost a quarter of all Londoners died. 90,000-odd people probably died in the course of that year. And the poor simmered with resentment because the rich deserted the city. Uh, all the, most of the doctors left, most of the priests left, and certainly all the courtiers left. So it wasn't something that impacted on all Londoners equally. I think that's one, one lesson they learned. There's no common experience. As, as for the fire, it destroyed three quarters of the old city. You know, it was devastating in its effect. There was nothing of the street plan left. But, you know, you could see from one end of the town to the other when, when the fire was finally put out. But this was a different experience because, you know, the, the king and his brother, the Duke of York, did help fight the flames. And Londoners were all in it together. You know, they did pull together afterwards. And in six years, they'd mostly rebuilt it, which is a tremendous thing. As for the Dutch wars, um, well, it was disruptive to trade. But I think it had the effect of making Londoners see how important the eastern maritime districts were to the nation. I mean, they were pretty lawless. And round about this time, um, you know, people took steps to, to enforce law and order more in these parishes. They, they built stocks and cages to put in prisoners. Because, you know, when, when they were press-ganging seamen, they... They discovered how um, how lawless these people were. I mean, one seaman's wife, you know, hit hit the leader of a press gang and said, called him a rogue and a horse turd for daring to serve Cromwell and and you know press gang the seaman. They they were very violent people. But I think the country realised that it depended on seamen, so it had to calm them a bit. And of course, the other thing is that it brought much more business to the naval dockyards in terms of building warships. Um, and building up these industrial towns, these satellite towns like like Deptford and, and Woolwich. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. I mean, an astonishing fact is that some of the city parishes were about three times more crowded, more densely populated than London boroughs today. So if Pepys returned tomorrow, he'd be stupefied. I'm sure he would. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. 
Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Now, um, your book doesn't just deal with disasters and great affairs of state. It also enters the, the domestic setting, doesn't it? And I especially enjoyed um, the section about the sometimes fractious relationship between the diarist John Evelyn and his wife Mary. I mean, how how did domestic life and the role of women uh, change throughout the seventeenth century, especially in London? Well, I think it depends what class we're thinking about, because working women, you know, the women who hawked goods through the streets or, or served as washerwomen or as widows took over their husband's business, I don't think much changed for them. I mean, several, I mean, several business businesses were run by women. So the naval dockyard famously had a female plumber, they're called a plumeress. I think women must have been very disappointed by the time of the later 17th century, because during the Civil War period, they they were very active politically. Uh, you know, in, in the dissenting sects, the women had equal rights spiritually. They could they could preach sermons in these dissenting churches, and as I said earlier, they they signed enormous petitions and and besieged Whitehall with them. But as soon as Cromwell got power, he he took fright, really, at all this women's activity and, and put them back in their place. And people complained, they, you know, they complained about women wearing makeup, which only prostitutes had done before, apparently. Um, and women were rounded up if they were prostitutes. I mean, 400 prostitutes were sent to Barbados um, in, in the 1650s. But if you were a middle-class woman, I think you probably found that your material life at home improved. So you would have more luxury fabrics from the East. You might be drinking chocolate, uh, tea. You might have fashionable tea parties now because Catherine of Braganza, Charles II's queen, um, brought the habit of tea drinking into London. Um, and I think the furniture was probably lighter. You know, you could move it around a lot more. People didn't necessarily dine with the servants and apprentices anymore. It was a little bit more genteel. And French tastes meant that you had more china as opposed to pewter. But I think it must have been terribly frustrating because um, women in London were quite sophisticated. And um, I think they must have been really frustrated at their position in life. So Hannah Woolley, who, who wrote cookbooks... She prefaced one of her books by saying, you know, in, in this depraved age, it seemed to be enough that women, women knew their husband's bed from somebody else's, but that actually they were born as intelligent as men. And the only thing that uh, kept them down was the fact that they didn't have any education. Um, and, and this is something, of course, that becomes more of an issue in the 18th century. But, but you know, domestically, they, they, they found life easier because 
at the end of the century, about 45% of London's homes had piped water, at least for part of the week. And this, this made a huge difference to the life of female servants. Now, you, you've already mentioned the um, importance of, of, of trade to London. How did its status as a leading port, where witnessing a constant influx of goods, ideas and people from across the globe, influence its development in this century? I, I think the uh, London status as a leading port was crucial because it led to the expansion of seafaring and shipbuilding communities in the east and south of London. And the fact that London was such a, a big um, place for the consumption of luxury goods fed into the growth of trade. And that in itself meant that more shipbuilding commodities had to be imported, you know, wood, tar, hemp. And that increased trade in itself. So I think these, these kind of things all mushroomed together. So by the end of the century, London handed, handled about 80% of England's imports and about 65% of its exports. So, you know, it, it was like now, London was hugely important in England. These imported luxuries not only changed the quality of life in the capital, they impacted on the built environment um, fashionable new shopping areas grew up in, in Westminster, Whitehall and Charing Cross. The, the city grew much more cosmopolitan, partly because growing numbers of African and Asian seamen um, swelled London's black population, which, you know, at the beginning of the century, it only totaled just a few thousand black servants, musicians and dancers. Yeah, yeah, it became a, a lot more cosmopolitan and interesting. In fact, by 1700, about 5% of, of the population was French. <laughs> thing not to be thought of, but it was. <laughs> Why was that? Because of the Huguenot immigration. You know, they came in vast numbers and did an enormous amount of good. I mean, they brought such huge numbers of skills that English people lacked. Um, so again, that helped trade and manufacturing. How much did the city change physically in the 17th century? And, and how much of... of- that city would be recognised today? Well, the, cha- the city changed enormously. I mean, at it, it, the beginning, London and Westminster were two separate cities joined by a kind of strand with palaces and a thin ribbon of development alongside the road. And by the end of the century, it, it was one city, effectively. These two towns had joined up. And there was enormous expansion to the west. You get new squares for the elite elegant houses and to the north you get the weavers districts bitterfields to the east as i've said you get the maritime suburbs and and there were lots of infilling you know to cope with the influx of people i mean an astonishing fact is that some of the city parishes were about three times more crowded more densely populated than london boroughs today um, right. Okay. So if Pepys returned tomorrow, he'd be stupefied. I'm sure he would. But but some aspects of 17th century London remain. So um, the fire, the Great Fire in 1665, destroyed about three quarters of the city. But the street plan was kept when the city was rebuilt, partly because there was no money, partly because there was no time, and partly because London lacked the administrative capability to uh, redesign. Um, on more elegant, spacious lines. So you can still see the old medieval street plan, you know, with with Cheapside, the great shopping centre, St Paul's, where it would have been. And there survive, obviously, the churches that Wren built after the fire. And there are things like the banqueting house, the monument, all 17th century constructions. 
And in Greenwich, you've got the Royal Observatory and the Queen's House, um, the Siemens Hospital. And if you're looking for more lowly dwellings in Limehouse, um, in Narrow Street, you can still see some of the early places where people would have had shipbuilding uh, or ship repairing um, industries there. So if you look, you can find buildings, but it's, it's not totally unrecognisable. The strapline of your book is the making of the world's greatest city. How did the 17th century help transform London and accelerate its journey towards being one of the world's greatest cities? I mean, what extent did, did the city's development in this period act as a springboard to Britain's emergence as an international superpower? During this century, London shaped national events, but it was also shaped by them. So the population more than doubled, um, largely due to migration from the rest of England and the refugees from France and the Low Countries. The middle classes grew. I mean, they accounted for about 30% of the population by the end of the century. And, and the people became more educated. The belief in magic declined. It never disappeared completely, but it, it declined. And um, developments like the Penny Post in which started in 1680, kept them better informed. And I think after the glorious revolution, so-called, of 1688, England bought into the current propaganda of being a Protestant nation favoured by God and destined for great things. But in terms of the institutions that, that helped um, England and then Britain springboard in the next century, there are a number of them. I mean, first of all, England now had... Um, a viable parliamentary system of government. And MPs made sure that the Crown could never again abuse its power. I mean, when William and Mary came to the throne, MPs drew up a list of conditions known as the Declaration of Rights to preserve civil liberties from arbitrary government. And I think these days we don't realise how important a development that was, you know. We sort of take our rights for granted, but people had to work very hard to get them. And then we had things like the Bank of England, which was set up in 1694, and that allowed um, the government to borrow money on the strength of taxes so we could have a national debt. And this meant that we could wage war for long periods, you know, which we couldn't before because before war sort of petered out when people ran out of money. And I think London became a hub for scientific inquiry because of the Royal Society, um, which was at the heart of a, a growing imperial network because knowledge was brought back by seafarers from all over the world. And we also became more of a commercial power um, because thanks to all this Huguenot expertise, uh, a lot of joint stock companies, investment companies were set up in various things. And then there were social things that happened too. So by the end of the century, there was a system of parish poor, poor relief. I mean, it was a postcode lottery, so to speak, because it depended on local circumstances, but the poor could get local relief. So all these things together meant that by the end of the century, England really was the greatest trading nation in Europe, which is amazing, actually, when you think of the progress it had made in just 100 years. But I have to say that the people on the ground didn't know this. <laughs> they they didn't realise that, that that life was good. I mean, they still had disease and highwaymen and, you know, pollution. Um, so they weren't entirely certain that everything was going to be fine. Um, but they kind of hoped, I guess. Now, of all, all the people you came across during your research uh, for the writing of this book, 
Is there one that particularly stands out that you'd like to tell us about? Well, I had great fun writing this book, actually. And it is um, it is wonderful when you go to the archives and you get the real speaking voice of, of quite ordinary people. I don't know if I can really choose one. I suppose that the, the one that really surprised me the most was to find that um, the wives of levellers, you know, uh, these people who argued for... Uh, more social equality and um, a widening of the franchise. They, they, of course, were imprisoned. The men were imprisoned. But their wives kept printing and distributing the literature until they they themselves were imprisoned. And I think the one fact that brought this home to me is when I read about Mary Overton, who was the wife of one leveller, who was uh, dragged on a hurdle to Bridewell you know, clutching her child of six months at the same time, who who was to die in prison. I think this really brought it home to me that people really had to struggle to get the rights that we take for granted today. So I think I'd choose her. That was Margaret Lincoln. London and the 17th Century, The Making of the World's Greatest City, is out now published by Yale. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Join us tomorrow for a conversation on how slavery fueled the British Empire.